I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He is put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water, and baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Um, let's um, start off this morning by watching a clip um, from Fred Rogers. There are many ways to make pictures and letters and clouds. And there are many ways to tell and show people you love them. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say.
even a more important way to say I love you, perhaps. Fred surrounded himself with people who would hold him accountable, ask the hard questions, challenge him, make him mad and defensive at times, but who stuck through the awkwardness with him for the more real and enriching relationships. When Fred said there are many ways to say I love you, he was thinking about Betty Aberlin, his, his collaborator and his co-creator, the one who knew Fred well enough and loved Fred full enough to say things like this. Fred, this might be offensive to women. Fred, have you thought that this might be offensive to African Americans? Fred, the way you said that may not come across well with gay people. In February of 1991, Betty Aberlin was deeply concerned about the Gulf War and the neighborhood's relative silence about it. And she requested that they at least, at least play the older episodes that, about conflict, about war that they had done in the past because they had been so controversial, but they, were, they did good work, and Fred said no. He said they were too controversial before, we we're not gonna touch it again. And so in a fiery letter to Fred, Betty Aberlin wrote this. When I was young, I remember hearing how the Jews were exterminated in part because good men and women did nothing to prevent it and did not talk about it. Now the, Iraqi, the, Iraq people, the people of Iraq are being slaughtered and, and children in Israel and in the US are terrorized and traumatized and brainwashed and placated and your decision, Fred, to not refer to or air at least our previous recordings about conflict and about war when God always is calling us, she said, always is calling us to pro proclaim Christ's peace. It has just, it has me stunned, Fred. I'm disappointed in you. It was what you did, it was what you did not do and did not say that offended me. And I strongly disagree with this decision but I will continue to love you and work to forgive you, but I will be questioning my capacity to collaborate with you ongoing. And those are strong words. But Fred said that they made him all the better. Honest conversation and accountability are the best way to say I love you. While Fred saying there are many ways to say I love you, the Apostle Peter, speaking in our text today, sang a similar song. Peter writing to Christians scattered as exiles and refugees and aliens throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia. Followers of Christ who were pressed on every side, persecuted, oppressed, sometimes martyred for Christ, and, and yet willing to take on that, the suffering of Christ Peter said to them, it is hard to do what is good. It is hard to say what is good. It's hard to be honest, to say what needs to be said. The mark of a Christian is being eager to do the good anyways. It's being eager to say, I love you with honesty. The early Christians knew plenty of people who had been harmed, who had suffered, who had died doing the good work of Jesus Christ, but it is in suffering to do what is right, to say what is right, to speak up when it is necessary, when, 
that is the task and the blessing of being a Christian. So Mr. Rogers called this the essential way to say I love you. But Peter calls this always being ready to make a defense for the hope that is inside of you. Peter says, do not fear, do not be intimidated, but demonstrate your love for God and one another by always being ready to make a defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. There are many ways to say I love you, and one of the best ways is to defend the hope that is inside of you. And this is where Peter's understanding of what it means to be a Christian diverges through most, from most understandings of what it means to be a Christian. I don't know about you, I grew up in a church where there was a saying, and the saying goes something like this, don't smoke, drink, chew, or go with girls who do. You heard that before? Maybe? No. Okay. All right. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. It's like Christian morality at its best. If you grew up in certain parts of the Christian tradition, maybe more conservative or fundamentalist strands of it, you know it all too well that Christianity gets summed up in a series of actions that are not to be done or ways of being to stand against. And if you, you learned Christianity in this way, like I did, you, you might think Christians are primarily the kind of people who don't do things. I've, I've been a part of churches that were known for not being allowed to wear shorts or not being allowed to dance. It's easy to perceive that to be a Christian is to not do certain things then. This is not the version of Christianity that is often experienced by everyone, though. Um, some of you <laughs> might have grown up in churches in which you are more familiar with this. Maybe you grew up in churches that are known for a different kind of not, namely not being any different than anyone else around you. Maybe the Christians who shaped your vision of Christianity then are just like all the other people around you, mostly nice, not very confrontational, a little boring. Perhaps what you learned is that to be a Christian means to maybe vote in a certain way or to have manners and morals typical of the culture, culture and social context around you. Perhaps being a Christian has seemed socially and culturally convenient and it's easy to perceive that being a Christian is, is not to be much different than who you would be otherwise if you weren't a Christian. And this not any different version, so it's the not doing things version, or the not any different version of Christianity, it's often experienced by those outside and inside the faith as relatively inconsequential to my life. I, this doesn't really affect my life much. But neither of these versions of Christianity, defined by the knots, the not doing certain things or the not being really all that different from anyone else, is not the kind of Christianity Peter is referring to here. Peter tells a church that Christianity is to be known for doing what is right, saying what is important, 
and making a defense for the hope that is inside of you. To not be about what we don't do, but what we actually do. To not look no different from anyone else, but to force honest conversation, to bring what matters to the forefront, to hold people accountable, to account with loving kindness and humility and gentleness for the hope that should be pouring out of you. And Peter expects those who are not followers of this way to demand an account from Christians. Surprisingly, he does not expect them to demand an accounting for Christians being judgmental or legalistic or mostly nice. Peter expects that in watching and witnessing the good works of the church that persist in suffering, people will actually ask us, why that hope? They'll look at the church and see hope among the people and want to know why. Why do you defend the hope that is inside of you? Peter expects the church to be put on trial, both formally and informally to testify to and make a defense for our hope. Imagine that, imagine that. Those without faith in Christ will see good and question the hope that inspires that good. And I wonder what that would be like to put on trial, to be put on trial for, for hope. What would it be like for you to be put on trial for the defense of the hope inside of you? The world that's surrounded the early church was no less full of suffering than ours, no less full of challenge, no less full of pain. Maybe it was more so. Life for all first century people was surely more precarious than ours is. And for those early Christians, the threat of suffering and death was more real than anything we Christians in North America face today. And so why hope? Why not fear, or worry, or concern, or dread? Why hope? Are you defending the hope that is inside of you? A couple weeks ago at Kingstown, uh, I gave you the opportunity to do as what Mr. Rogers called loving the clay. Defending the hope that's inside of you. Not saying, not telling other people what not to do, also, not acting like you are just like anyone else, but loving the clay and defending the hope that's inside of you. And some of you chose to go into the back corner and take pictures um, to send to the bishop to say, hey, bishop, the hope inside of me says the church is to be a place that welcomes all. And some of you wrote letters to the bishop um, that said the hope inside of me says, or what I've learned here in community, the hope that has filled me here in community is to say the church is a place for all. One person in our congregation in particular wrote a letter to the bishop that I want her to share with you. Um, and um, she's very nervous, so give her all your love, okay? Let's listen to Megan as she shares with her how she defends the hope inside of her. There we go. <laughs> Sorry, I am ridiculously nervous. <laughs> okay, so this is the um, letter I wrote to the bishop. It's not personal. I keep repeating that to myself, like in doing so, it will take away the sting. I rationalize 
that organizations have rules and traditions to help keep order. They have to draw the line somewhere. The wheels of change turn slowly. But the truth is, no matter how many times I tell myself that, it does not change the fact that it feels very personal. That is the wonderful thing about church and spirituality and faith, though. It is so deeply personal. Our relationship with God, with each other, both so amazingly personal. Our role within God's incredible plan, personal. My prayers and time spent in meditation with God, personal. My faults and shortcomings, personal. God's forgiveness, personal. Maybe that is why, more than any other person, organization, or law, the actions of the church always feel so awfully personal. I realize that I probably won't change your mind about how you feel about the LGBT community, but I want to make sure you understand why some of us take the recent actions of the church so personally. Because as I mentioned above, nothing is more personal to me than the church and my faith. I grew up happy and in a loving home. I was raised Catholic, went to Mass every week, and even attended Catholic school. I grew up with the notion of God loving everyone and that God made us all unique. This was such a comfort to me, as I had felt different in some way from the time I was very young. I was 14 when I figured out what exactly it was that made me feel different, and I panicked. While the church preached that God loves everyone, I knew that there was a very clear line when it came to being gay. I racked my brain trying to remember when I made the choice to be infatuated with those girls in my fifth period, but couldn't figure it out. So I finally decided to tell my parents, the two people I trusted, who knew me, knew how much I loved God and the church, who would understand that I didn't need to be gay. I came out, it didn't go well, I pretended that I was just kidding, we didn't talk about it again for 11 years. During those 11 years, I continued to go to church. I would listen to the sermons about the evils of homosexuality and feel so ashamed. Newsletters came out detailing the church's stance on gay marriage, sexuality of priests, and the merits of conversion therapy. I knew that even though I could hide it from everyone around me, God knew all of my thoughts and feelings. I was sure our personal relationship was ruined, that I had so disappointed him. I remember cutting into my arm with a razor after church one day. I was half trying to punish myself and half trying to bleed the gay out of myself. I knew that in the eyes of the church, from all the preaching and the policies, that being gay was not okay. I was not okay. It was personal. I never acted on my homosexual desires through high school or into college hoping that that would make me okay in the eyes of God, but I still felt very flawed. When I found myself attracted to one of my roommates in sophomore year of college, I dropped out and joined the Marine Corps. There was no better way at keeping my desires in check than serving in a male-dominated profession under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I didn't want to be gay. I wanted to be something that would be pleasing to God. At 25, I was out of the Marines, still attending church every week, helping with the youth group, and reluctantly falling in love with my first girlfriend. It was then that a member of the church asked to take me out to coffee. He bent his head to pray before we ate and proceeded to tell me that he knew I was gay. 
The next hour was filled with his plans and others who had found out about my sin to write the bishop to make sure that I was removed from helping the youth group. We have to protect the children, he said. He also mentioned that he would make sure that I was denied communion until I sought forgiveness and my soul was cleansed. He suggested that I seek spiritual counseling or a camp to help fight my unnatural perversion. He wasn't saying anything that wasn't church policy. Everything I heard that day, I had already heard from my pre-sermons and the policies handed down from the church leadership. But there was no denying that this time it was very personal. I left the church and spent the next many years very lost. My parents had chosen to stay with the church. I shut down spiritually, feeling unworthy of a personal relationship with God. I made a lot of bad decisions during this time. Looking back, I think I was mostly trying to match whatever evil it was that everyone else saw in me. Thankfully, I happened upon a good counselor and got my life back in order. Well, except for my faith. My faith and my relationship with God seemed irrevocably shattered. Then something amazing happened. I met a woman who I could share all of me with. Even those messy, unsure, mad at God for making me this way parts. In her, I see all the best parts of Jesus and the faith I used to cling to. Love, compassion, forgiveness, gentleness, and patience. She became my wife and a constant blessing to my life. She too, being gay, has struggled with church and her faith, but like me, never lost her desire for a personal relationship with Christ in a church. So with each other's support, we vulnerably ventured out to find a spiritual community that would welcome us as broken and different as we are. We were blessed to find the Kingstown Communion. It was full of people who didn't think that our being gay made us unworthy of God's love or being participants in all aspects of worship. It felt wonderful to be part of a spiritual community again, and I felt that wall that I had put up between God and myself start to come down. When the Methodist Church decided to uphold the restrictions for the LGBT community outlined in the Book of Discipline, it all came flooding back. Feeling dirty, less than, unwanted, and feeling unworthy of God's love and grace. I watched as church leadership cling to views on who I am and how my very being affects the church, as if my being fully included at my place of worship, making church and faith a part of my marriage, and working on my relationship with God somehow threatens them or their institution. I know that you probably didn't want to know this whole story, and that it probably won't change how you feel about me and my life, but I hope it impresses upon you the power that church leadership, that you, have on making people feel worthy of a relationship with God in the church. I know that puts a lot of weight squarely on your shoulders, but my guess is that you entered this profession because of the important and weighty work that church can do. That work can either reflect the love and compassion of Jesus Christ, or it can inflict harm that takes a lifetime to mend. Please remember as you make decisions that the church, God's church, is not a building or an institution, it is people people who are wonderfully different, some who are assured of their faith and some who are struggling, some who feel worthy and some who don't, some who are straight, some who are gay, and the list goes on and on, but all of us people. So as hard as it is, just know that every decision you make is always very personal.
So that's what I wrote to the bishop. <laughs> I want to say to you, the people of Kingstown Communion, I want to first say thank you for welcoming Carly and I into your community without hesitation or judgment. It has meant a lot to us, and frankly, at times it still takes us a second to realize that there isn't some sort of catch. Never a, we love you despite your sin. Never love the sinner but hate the sin. Never even a, we accept you anyway. Second, I know that my letter was directed at church leadership, but what I really want us as a community to understand is that our fight is or should be bigger than just gay clergy or weddings. I hope that my story helped you see that this is bigger. It is about making sure that a person never sits in church hating themselves. That nobody ever has to have the thought again that when something bad happens to them, that maybe, just maybe they're being punished because God doesn't actually love them. That no kid goes home and tries to hurt themselves because the church, a place they love, tells them that they are dirty. And that nobody, nobody ever feels that they are not worthy of God's love because of who they are. Again, thank you for being a community that is willing to take a stand take on the hard work of this fight, and for being willing to have the hard, uncomfortable conversations like this. And finally, thank you for being patient with us as we slowly start to realize that this really is a spiritual community that loves and accepts us for exactly who we are, and that just maybe, God does too.